This is Limit Up, the show where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology so that you can take your trading to the next level. Hello, traders, and welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by the eight-year-old now Top Step Trader. I'm Jack Pelzer, joined by the incomprehensible, no, incomparable. He's comprehensible. <laughs> He's back from his uh, vacation, not abroad, but at home. Mr. Dan Nodden. staycation, I like to call it. Staycation. I uh, got a lot of yard work done. I got a lot of sun, a lot of good suntan going. Um, sometimes yeah, a couple days off is nice. That Wisconsin sun, it'll do you well. Right. Uh, so, Dan, to bring you up to speed, while you were gone, uh, I held down the fort and did a couple of interviews. Uh, last week, we met with the trader chick um, All right. from Russia to the United States to Guatemala and now to Spain has been her journey. And uh, I also interviewed Miss Samantha Leduc, who is the founder of Leduc Trading and the CIO of Leduc Capital LLC. And uh, it was a awesome interview. Uh, she is totally on the ball, has a very unique story where she was an entrepreneur who sold a business, a tech business, and then got into trading from there and really spoke to her. Uh, she's just completely on as far as strategy. And I feel like people are going to learn a lot from her. So uh, you'll have to listen. Dan. I will. I'm excited to check this one out. And I think what's so, been so cool lately is a lot of the conversations we've had, the entrance into the world or into the market, the, the, the markets, the financial world has been so intriguing and so different. Like, like I thought mine was cool. Like grew up on the floor of the board of trade and like, no, no, it was just a progression. Like that was just what I was bound to do as a kid. Like, Hey, you grew up in this world, you're going to do this and it's just going to happen. But like hearing some of these stories about people and how they got into this, it's just been wild. So I'm excited to listen to this one. Yeah, I think we talk about that in the episode. I recorded it last week. Uh, but I think I also mentioned that uh, mine, not so interesting, but I might have to rewrite my backstory at some point. <laughs> you know, that was a moment, well, man. Well, hopefully last week, the technical gremlins were not in the way like they have been for, it seems like, everyone here this morning. Yeah, uh, we're in Chicago slash Lake Geneva, and I was worried that Chicago got hit by an EMP or something because... Uh, We've had a lot of internet problems this morning. Well, even up here in Wisconsin, I was having issues with everything and then magically just started working. Um, wild world we're living in. Yeah, we were talking about Tesla a few weeks back. Is, is it safe to say that Comcast is maybe the opposite of Tesla? <laughs> as far as a, a company with no vision, with uh, right? desperately clinging to the past in a way to extract uh, monopoly profits from a captive right? audience? All they got is the talking remote, the remote you can talk to to select your channels. And I still think 99% of the time I try and talk into that dang remote, it puts me on the wrong channel. Yeah. Well, we got a big week today as far as numbers go. By the time this comes out tomorrow, we'll already have known what Daddy Jerome Powell has told all the good little <laughs> traders. Uh, stocks are rallying a little bit into it right now, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because I think with seeing uh, gold has been screaming higher and uh, that's sort of the canary in the coal mine of inflation fears or at least when people are maybe pricing some of that into the market and I'm not one of those people that's completely there, there's a lot of people in 08 that said we were going to face 
huge inflation from all the central bank intervention, it didn't really materialize, except I have my own theory that it doesn't materialize because we have deflation in products that are easier technologically for us to create. You know, we're much better at processing food and things like that. Where we're seeing the inflation is in healthcare, education, education, uh, those things, some of those, the auto industry yeah, through the road. You could, you could go on for days. I remember when I, when I went to college 10 years ago, it was hugely expensive. The most expensive private universities would be like, $30,000 a year, $35,000 a year. Now I look at them, I think it's sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year to go to like the University of Chicago. Right. I, I can tell you like my freshman year of college, I think it was like $31,000. Um, I went to a private small college, expected to be high. Um, my brother, he's about nine, 10 years younger than I am. His last year in college um, was pushing that 60 mark. And he was in a state school. Wow. So major differences, um, huge inflation there. But then you look, you know, just to throw it out there on the flip side, that technology point that you're talking about, like I can remember speak, my freshman year in college buying a TV. I searched high and low. I bought a 26-inch flat screen, which was about five inches thick, but it was still flat screen. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I bought that my freshman year in college, and it was $650. When I bought my house here in Wisconsin last year, I needed a couple TVs. So I bought two 4K 55-inch real flat screens, about a half an inch thick, uh, for about 400 bucks a piece. Yeah. So I got almost two huge TVs for the price of one. Yeah. So there's a lot of conflicting things as far as inflation goes. But I guess what I'm saying is uh, my mantra for the week is traders, keep an eye on those gold prices, especially after whatever... Chairman Powell says, because, you know, if we start to see inflation running hot, you know, a lot of this is based on expectations of the liquidity the Fed's going to provide. And it'll be interesting to see if they actually have to do something to perhaps combat inflation. I know we've been saying it for years, but gold is also the highest it's been since, uh, how far back? Like, yeah, at least since the crisis. Now it's like, yeah. So, we hit like a couple weeks ago, we hit high since 09, I think. And now we're another $60 higher. It's just unbelievable. Then you look at crude oil or uh, crude oil. Silver's doing the exact same thing. I think silver is an area that I'm hearing a lot of chatter and a lot of people talking about that. It's forcing me to start to pay attention to that one. So we got a lot going on. Yeah, because the ratio between silver and gold has been so it's it's like people forgot about the other precious metals and the ratio has gotten completely out of whack with where it's yeah. been historically. So there's a lot perhaps a lot of room to run. And now you see like the Robinhood traders, one of the top uh things in Robin Track was this <laughs> silver it was the silver ETF. Everyone so, wants silver. I'm getting asked like every single day on the recap or getting messages from traders asking me more questions about silver. I'm like, "Man, oh man, I got to pay more attention to this." And yeah, definitely. And I think I remember for the traders out there who are trading a lot of equities, our guys, is that inflation in general, it can it can be good for equities because they're making earnings and the inflated dollars. But uh, the problem is that the measures that combat inflation are decidedly bad for stocks if they try and do that, because that's that's raising interest rates that's taking money out of the system. So I would just that's what I would be paying attention to right now, but we'll know a lot more by tomorrow. Unfortunately, we're recording this on Wednesday. Uh, But for now, 
why don't we talk a little bit more about trading as a whole with this great interview we had today with Samantha LaDuke. We'll see you after the break. Hey, everybody. Today we have on the interview uh, virtual dojo podcast line, uh, we are joined by the very amazing Samantha LaDuke, who is the founder of LaDuke Trading and the CIO of LaDuke Capital LLC. Um, but we are going to start by talking about sparkling water. Uh, I just took a little <laughs> bit of LaCroix. Uh, do, you, do you get into that sparkling water or? Um, if it's in my sangria. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's noon on a Tuesday here, so I got to wait a little while. But uh, yeah, my in-laws are in town, so who knows? So, uh, Samantha, thanks so much for joining us. Um, you're in Massachusetts, I just understand? North of Boston, correct. North of Boston. All right. Well, you have a super interesting background, so we can kind of just start diving into it. Um, you've been actively trading since 2008. Now, is that after you uh, were in the tech industry? I was. So I had a business which I sold actually a year and a half before I started actively trading. And it was a family medical emergency that caused me to sell the business. And I took a year and a half off, traveled actually, um, once my son stabilized from a medical emergency, traveled a fair amount during that summer of 08. And then once they were back in school, which was fall, decided, um, you know, needed to engage the brain, very curious type, and very much like to be stimulated and challenged. But I also wanted to be at the door when the bus dropped the kids off. So it was really important for me to carve out a, a quality of life scenario. And I decided, I knew the fundamental stuff. I wanted to get more into more of the macro and technical and, and you know, sentiment part of the market, and so decided to kind of jump in very seriously in September of 2008, just as the Lehman brother um, collapse was occurring. So it was also portfolio protection since I had sold my business a year and a half prior. So um, hence that kind of launched, if you will, not only my trading activities, but it also I discovered I adore this. Like I adore it. <laughs> it's just. Yeah. It fed me on lots of different levels. So now all three of my kids are gone <laughs> to help the door. Um, and I have a lot more time to uh, dedicate to it. So a few years ago, I opened up shop and made it available. So I was doing more consulting. And now I have a full-fledged trader education business. That's great. Um, yeah, one thing I'd throw out there to the listeners who are mostly retail traders too is that you know, when I interview people for the show or even think about my own background, it's often these periods of historic volatility that kind of bring people into the market and start their sort of love for that. I know when I started working at a prop shop, I was a, um, well, I started looking at that sort of career because during my junior or senior year of college, that's when the financial crisis happened yep. and it was just top of mind and everything. And there were no jobs in a lot of other things for people with economics degrees. But it's not just professional volatility or market volatility, but it's also at kind of inflection points in your own life, right? So yeah. personal volatility for me, you know, I sold my business from Children's Hospital Boston. Like I knew I wasn't going to be going back to it and I had been doing it for 10 years. So, you know, taking that created volatility in my, that rocked my world. So a year and a half later, 
this was the kind of carving out of a new career. So personal volatility got me into trading volatility. And by the way, I was really, really comfortable with trading volatility. <laughs> yeah. And maybe the personal kind of, you know, added to that. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, I'm known as a volatility trader. So I don't run from it. I actually, I'm good in a panic. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you have an entrepreneurial side to you, which is, that's the same sort of, there's huge risk involved with that. It's certainly not an easy way to make a living. Yep. Um, I, the reason I pointed that out was just because I feel like so many people now I've seen started their trading careers coincidentally around, you know, 2008. And uh, with everything that's happening right now, I think there's a lot of people that this is kind of their first taste of it. And you kind of get, that's like your foot in the door. So when you were started trading in 2008, did you find success early or did you go through some tribulations or? So this is, I, I kind of chuckle right now with this whole analog to the 1999 through 2001 timeframe with, you know, valuations and such in the market. And then of course, the influx of retail traders, which of course I study money flow, institutional and otherwise. So this is very impactful to the, the market structure that that inflow of retail traders. And by the way, Charles Schwab has a lot more increase in account business than Robinhood. But the point is we have this, you know, crazy amount of, of um, new traders to the, to the market. And I, I, re I recollect back to when I was like totally a cowgirl. And I said this to someone recently. I said, when I first came in, you know, between September 08 and March 09, roughly, you know, six months, I had a huge, huge explosion in profits. And I was just slinging stock. This is before I was trading, you know, options and knew how to trade. <laughs> well, so, were, you, were you hedging things? No, <laughs> absolutely not. Are you kidding me? No, this was, this was shooting fish in a barrel. So it was totally right there. Their sentiment right now is exactly what I remember uh, coming into the market and feeling that lack of fear because it was absolutely, I didn't know what I didn't know, but I went for it. And, you know, I have always had this kind of mentality of don't risk any more than you're willing to lose. So, you know, like I set up with a set amount of money and just went for it. So it's kind of, but the, that's, that was then. This is now. Sure. <laughs> There's this thing called evolution and it's a learning planet. And I have now learned and love to learn, you know, not just what's moving, but why it's moving and, and how to, you know, how to trade it risk defined. So I can relate to this whole sentiment driven market right now, but I also caution the new cowboys and cowgirls coming into the market. You need to understand at some point what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, because it will be, you know, that, that all that emotion is going to turn into, you know, the the the, the gut wrenching. Oh my god! <laughs> so that's, that's what I, I feel right now that that particular sentiment driven market is what has us very firmly in a kind of a bullish bent, but it can also turn and turn viciously. So. Yeah, definitely the watcher back. It's it's good that you talk about evolution because sometimes, you know, I've just observed in my own life that one of the worst things that can happen 
to a new trader is getting a hot hand right off the bat. And then, you know, you make a couple great trades, you get that feeling of invincibility. And then when the conditions change, you don't change and you lose more than if you just lost it all at the beginning. And that plus also the the market is, I think, for lack of a better word, it's more of a breathing organism. It really does change, you know, as it relates to the direction, of course, but also what motivates, right? The psychology of crowd and all of that. So when I started, it was shorting. So mother's milk to me was learning how to short stock. Yeah. <laughs> so I, and of course, to embrace volatility. So those those two themes from which I learned how to trade are still part of my DNA. But it doesn't mean that I am perpetually, first of all, I use options now um, 90% of the time. And, you know, I have mostly long. I have very, very few shorts. But the point is, you have to be flexible, which I think also lends itself to being a mom. I didn't kind of get into this rigid mindset that it had to be one way or the other. Um, but I had to learn. I had to learn that. There's no question about it. I had to learn to be, you know, open to figuring out what the market was going to do next if I was going to really stick in this in this profession. And I found that I loved the puzzle of it all. Sure. You can't, you can't become a, uh, for lack of a better word, a market zealot who uh, has one firm belief that they stick to no matter what, because it is constantly morphing and changing. And you have to be willing to smash your own ego and just go with what the market is giving to you as opposed to what you want it to be giving to you. So you start trading on your own. Uh, tell us about how you started uh, Leduc Trading or what the kind of uh, evolution was from just trading on your own to uh, starting a company. Well, I think first I have some ambition in my belly. Um, mm, sounds like it. It's good. Is that entrepreneurial side, that uh, right side of the brain that's rather creative. At the same time, I didn't want to duplicate anything else that anyone was doing. I simply had a process that I was trying to figure out for myself. And if it appealed to other people, great. That's kind of how I approach things. Like to me, this is a puzzle. And I am very grateful that I can play this game. You know, it's like a board game every single day and not get bored. And there are others that do appreciate the insights because I am flexible, because I am looking for the puzzle piece for them, or at least to cooperate, you know, with their narrative. Um, I kind of, I, I don't want to say I lump traders into two categories, but those who think and those who don't. In other words, they just want to trade and those who really want to understand why. So I like both of those worlds and, you know, putting them together. So I was basically just retail rogue, if you will, um, and then got a number of inquiries to shadow. And, you know, this kind of grew where I opened up this consulting, if you will, because I was not rigid or how do I put this? I wasn't trained by anyone but myself. So restrictions, not my jam. I could see things happening. Like I can really feel inflection points. I can also compare macro with intermarket and, you know, technical and fundamental and sentiment and technical and I you know, all this uh, and volatility and put it all together in quant. And I can create some really good context out of data. So I'm not a, just a data girl. I really, really want to create a story. 
and I want to be able to predict what the next chapter is going to be. So I like that prediction game. And a lot of people don't like the prediction game. So the fact that I was, first of all, quite brave to go out there <laughs> and, and, and actually look for volatility, not run from it, to predict and not shy away from it. And by the way, ego, oh my God, this is, I'm in the business of making calls every day and they're completely transparent, good, bad, or ugly. So it's next. I have to have the mindset of, okay, win, lose, or draw, what's next? So I, I think that that kind of appealed, um, lack of a better word, that trust, if you will, of being transparent, that, that willingness to make calls, macro and micro, it, it earned a following. And I'm so grateful for it because I would do this even if I wasn't paid. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's something, um, a timely example of what you said about being self-taught is I saw um, Nate Silver you know, election forecaster, the 538 guy, he just tweeted yesterday. So he's a big data guy. And they were talking about in building data models, how it is important to some extent to be self-taught, that you rely more on experience and the data as opposed to getting wound up in some sort of rigid ideology, say, if you had a PhD in statistics without teaching yourself and working with the data and seeing how that works. So I think that it's super important to kind of bring your own flavor to things that's your own development. So that's very cool. Well, it's my personality, right? So I mean, yeah. I'm actually pretty vanilla flavored as it relates to like personality. I don't really have extremes. I ne you know, don't have a colorful background. <laughs> I mean, kind of I haven't met you. You sound like you have uh, <laughs> no. like a, perfect, a great personality. Well, life has created some color, but my point is I'm not looking for excitement. I'm not looking for risk. Um, I actually consider myself risk aware, not risk averse. I really just want to be aware of risk and present that to clients. They do with it as they please, depending on their own experience and, you know, time frame and, and, and. But for me, um, this whole idea of restriction, uh, it's not my jam. So I like to be cross-disciplinarian, you know, looking at lots of different pieces. And I can scan and synthesize better than most. So that's probably the the thing that I've been able to, um, if I worked for anyone else, it, it wouldn't happen because I wouldn't be able to scan and synthesize. It would be very much focused on, you know, I, I would say more guidelines and and rules and regulations. So for me, I have to actually have people come in to help me stay within the guardrails sometimes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I brought in a risk manager who, by the way, what that person does extremely well is making sure I don't go off the rails. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. You need someone like that. Uh, you know, every trading firm has a risk manager, you know, and for good reason. You don't need people flying off the handles. <laughs> but it's also just that little... Um, I'm not paying so much attention to that always as as much as I am this incredible inflection point of market turns. For me, I am very, very focused on market timing calls, right? So inflection points are really important to me. That's where I spend enormous amounts of my analysis. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I can uh, totally relate to you on the having a boring background thing as well. I mean... <laughs> 
I'm just an Irish Catholic guy from the <laughs> Chicago suburbs. Uh, there were a dime a dozen, but you can make yourself interesting through doing things. You know, I haven't uh, worked on an oil rig or anything cool like that. Um, but you, you talk about how we have you friends can, that have though, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I, I interview people sometimes who have the most incredible like backgrounds, you know, you have the background you have, you have to make the best of it, I guess is the way it goes. Uh, you describe yourself as a uh, macro to micro analyst. So as, as we're talking about your calls and things like that, would you want to talk a little bit about your approach to um, looking at the market that way? The approach to looking at the market that way, this is, again, my curiosity of, okay, so why did things fall apart, you know, back in 2008? Because when you're unsuspecting and just coming in as a technical trader, you don't always know why things are moving. Or if you're totally focused on fundamentals, it really is not a safe bet in a technically driven market. And of course, you know, this whole concept of quant and passive asset under management, you know, is 60% of the market structure. I want to know what they're doing. So to me, this was, I want to understand the backdrop. That's the macro. I want to understand what's going on in regards to, you know, economic policies, because policies will determine prices. And this to me is fascinating. So the macro backdrop of commodities and currencies, and of course, politics as it relates to policies, not politics for, for the purpose of that whole melodrama. Right it's on. not even drama, it's melodrama. It's, <laughs> for the, it's for the purpose of policies dictate pricing, no question. So that's what I like using as a, as a backdrop for the macro. And then operationalizing that, which is kind of a, a fancy way for coming up with a trade setup. Sure. I like that. Yeah, I think it's important that um, a lot of especially the day traders we work with, I sometimes think you have to look really closely at the micro and technical stuff because in the short time frame, that's what's going gonna to move things. But you're ultimately going to be wrong in the long term. We don't always know when if you're not aware of what the larger gears that are moving this machine are. And I think that it is definitely a great skill to get more acquainted with um, the larger structural parts of things that move prices. And as you say, a lot of that is policy. You know, right now there's all sorts of crazy things going on. You have uh, the dynamic of what the Fed is doing. You have what you mentioned about how um, investments have been dominated by uh, passive funds. And there's a lot of um, hypotheses about what that might do at a certain point that we really haven't experienced yet. I know some people talk about these passive funds maybe inflating stocks that don't deserve it, or you know, we haven't reached the part where people are selling them because they're reaching retirement yet because they're all just sitting around in their 401ks. Um, these are all things that I think about because I just find them interesting. Well, I go a little bit, this is, it's more than interesting to me. I don't have a crystal ball really past like six months. My, my prediction powers are definitely shorter duration than the macro gurus and wonks and hedge fund managers that are looking, you know, several years out, right? So I'm not playing that game just to qualify my vision. <laughs> I'm definitely running a live trading room. There's no doubt and there's no lack of day trading setups. It's ex it's exhilarating. I mean, we're looking at, I'm looking at, you know, market moving news and it could be anything, right? It could be a press release or a policy, you know, rumor, the Fed, of course, 
whatever happens to impact uh, right now a COVID headline, right? So this is market moving and the direction of the markets and the underlying sector rotation is where I excel. Like this is where money flow goes is where I can, you know, smell the best risk reward. So, and also the inflection points of turns. So macro to me is just that backdrop of, okay, we've got policies that lead the economy, you know, credit leads equities, and then volatility reprices everything. That's kind of my mantra when it comes to the macro to micro. Ooh, that's policies good. lead the economy, credit leads equities, and volatility reprices everything. So I'm not spending my day. I do write every week and sometimes in my daily for, for clients, I'm definitely infusing the macro that matters. That's how I, you know, that's my, my heading macro matters. So there's always something for sure, but it's collectively over time where permanent job losses, right? And, you know, small business failures, they, they, they gang up on us. Um, so it's kind of slowly then all at once. I'm not focused on the all at once, right? I mean, I know, I know our capital's losing value. The dollar is, you know, soft relative to the euro right now, but I want to know how I'm going to use that for my clients to trade the market long because the dollar is soft. And when that reverses, I'm looking for that inflection point where the dollar will then pop or yields. And that is going to be risk off in tech because tech is a bond proxy. So then it's a really high probability short in tech. So I like to do that kind of work as a backdrop of when to stay with the trend and when to short, right? So this is, this is how I use macro. It's much different than a macro manager who is totally obsessed, you know, with big picture, we're going to have deflation or we're going to have inflation. And they can argue amongst themselves. I'm looking at what's going to happen in the next three months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's where the uh, secret sauce is. There's uh, too much ambiguity. Sorry, I can't talk right now. Uh, when you you know go out too far and have these debates that are more philosophical as opposed to what the market's actually going to do in the uh, shorter time frames when you can make the trades. So it, it sounds like you're using a lot of... Um, cross-asset correlations. Uh, yeah. Yes. And divergences. So that's a, that's the key word you just said. Cross-asset, yep, is absolutely my thing. I'm looking for that rotation, strength, relative weakness. I'm looking for divergences, which is really, really important for timing tops. And it's a lot easier to time tops than to time bottoms, which is why I kind of get this reputation of being a bear, which is 100% like right structurally when like if you have that inner voice that you don't really want to say out loud but it's a hundred percent wrong when it comes to my business because the reason i've been able to see when the market's going to roll over is because the indicators that i use are just so good at telling me divergences and it takes a while for the divergences to actually come and trigger a viable short and i'm patient so when it actually does turn I'm really good at spying a short because I've had a lot of time to see the divergences under the surface. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. But, but bottoms are events. Like clearly after a 35% drubbing in the market, we have that Fed intervention 
on March 23rd, Monday, and that was the bottom, period. So when is the Fed going to come out and save the market? Who knows? But the point is those are events and, and tops are absolutely beautiful timing tools um, when you have the right tools. Yeah. And at the bottoms, too, because they are event driven, usually the volatility around them is absolutely bonkers. Correct. But it's, it's reversion. At that point, you then get that. Oh, yeah. But we need confirmation. It, it's everything you need confirmation. But I, I just find that I'm better at, at timing tops. And um, then I'll go with <laughs> once I see that, you know, bottom inflection reversal. Yeah, that's that, that's a different matter. But it is yeah. it is definitely cross asset money flow divergences all that good stuff i would really encourage um our retail traders out there to take i don't see as many of them making a lot of cross asset correlation decisions i would you know it's something to explore i think it's something great that it just goes beyond your normal charts a little bit and i think it can help you out um we noticed from reading your uh, website that you are rather into uh, fishing metaphors i know <laughs> All right. No, I don't fish. I'm sorry to disappoint. Oh, man. Well, so, still, the metaphor will be worthwhile. It, it does. You know what? It's it's a little bit more fun, right? So trading is so serious, uh, and I take it seriously, and I work seriously hard. But I think the website is a little bit more fun, and maybe um, you know, internationally, the fishing metaphor is understandable. So I like the play on the fishing theme. Oh my gosh. And I could go on and on and on with it. There's like no end of fishing metaphors, um, quotes. <laughs> so it's been a lot of fun, but it does not have any personal reflection with me casting, you know, a rod or whale watching. Nothing. I, I, it has nothing to do with me actually. Then I really love the ocean, but it doesn't. Yeah. I like fish too, but there's nothing me actively relating it to some personal hobby. Oh, sure. Well, yeah. I mean, the metaphors are important because they do cut through trading such an international game. And um, we find ourselves constantly using sports metaphors or, you know, other things like that. But, you know, they work. They get the idea across. So, you know, even if you're not a fisherman, woman, yeah, exactly. we won't hold it against you. <laughs> Thank and, you. And, and speaking of my use of uh, my inappropriate use of fishermen there. Uh, <laughs> now that is a segue. Good save. All right. In, uh, you have a mantra, and I think this is really cool, uh, that there's no meritocracy in finance without the voice of women. Dead straight. Yeah. I, I come from the industry. I was at a, at a prop shop for seven, eight years, a, a big one in Chicago. And 97% of the traders were men. Yep. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what, though, on average, the 3% um, who were women, so it was probably like five traders, yeah. uh, on average, way better. <laughs> well, you know, whether it's better or not, it is just a cry and shame. And I think, of course, as with everything else, we've had some major inflection points in our culture of late, right? Whether it be the Me Too to um, Black Lives Matter, there is a, a finally this kind of upswelling, if you will, of comeuppance, for lack of a better word. And I think that this is really also the administration that we have is in stark contrast to equality, you know, represented, if you will. So I think there's there's this um, 
maybe quiet movement. It, it's slowly and then all at once, just like the market, right? But there are so many things I have to say on this subject. It's, you know, but that particular quote is very important to me because I really believe, um, you know, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, women belong in all places where decisions are being made. It shouldn't be that women are the exception. And whenever I call out a conference that is in this particular space of finance and trading, I am reminding them gently that privilege is invisible to those who have it. And their speaker lineup is 90% men, 95% men. You know, it's just incredibly obvious that they don't notice or they don't care or there's a particular effort to undermine and you know suppress the voice of women but we also have to do a better job of standing up and so when i do that <laughs> i oftentimes get you know lambasted or blocked or whatever because it is challenging that particular mindset and it isn't obvious to many i think there are a lot of men who actually are you know more egalitarian let's say in their personal lives but professionally they just really don't realize how that that man cave or the boys club is very, very much a hindrance to women. And we do not have meritocracy in finance and trading without the voice of women, period. Yeah. And I, you really hit the nail on the head there. And um, I was just going to say for the men too, I think it, it will benefit them to have more women in the industry because just like you said that the uh, men's club, the boys club is a hindrance to women getting involved. It's also a danger to themselves because you get too much, you build too much of that culture. Trading's, you know, trading's not just math and statistics and economics. I mean, most of it's psychology. Most, most of, it's, of it is psychology. A hundred percent agree with you. Most of it's manage, managing your emotions. It's, it's thinking about group psychology among the most complicated, you know, marketplace in the world. And if you get too much into that boys club attitude, the path that takes you down is, is not optimal for, you know, ultimately even making profits. You get, you know, there's too much like blind aggression and all sort of like the, the negative patterns that too many men can, together can get into. So the more voices you have, uh, it's just going to make for a better experience for everyone. And there is a little bit I see of change that's occurred since I first started, like three plus, like not even, maybe three years ago, three and a half years ago, where I went in search of women on FinTwit, basically, to kind of like create this quiet, silent community, right? So I just knew that they were there. <laughs> yeah. And that particular list has grown into the hundreds, which I'm so grateful for, um, but still, if I look at analysis, even of my, you know, small, I'm under 16,000 followers in Twitter, that's nothing, right? It's really small relative to the scheme of things, but it's still 86% men. So, and I know as you have, that's you know, <laughs> <laughs> I was so excited because it used to be much, much, much higher, right? So I'm like, woohoo. But the point is, you know, in the industry, there's still lots of data that's coming, you know, that is very clear. We have, just what three percent of mutual funds are actually run by women. It's the, the how many hedge funds? One percent. It's like incredibly paltry. There's not that 
changing, if you will, um, or acceptance, if you will, uh, very easily. It's it's very discouraging, actually. And I, I've said this to platform operators, whether it be Seeking Alpha, Stock Twits, et cetera, et cetera, the CEOs, the founders, that if they want to expand their market reach, they really need to do a better job of attracting women, elevating women, inspiring women, and they don't. And they say, why do we have to bother? Our business model works. Well, that's the problem, isn't it, right? That is a mindset of we don't have to change. Privilege is invisible to those who have it. They actually, they've got their pearls. They don't have to, to you know, to change anything. So it will be changed, just basic demographics and all this cultural movement, but it's too slow for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it just makes sense for everyone. You know, you're, you're missing out on half the talent pool. So, and but also the gender, the wealth gap is humongous. I mean, women keep, you know, 82% of the $1 that men make, but only 32 cents. Did I say dollars? 82 cents of the $1 and 32 cents for every $1 a man keeps in wealth. So th- this is very, um, needing to change. And we already know financial advisors are, predominantly men. I think the number is like 86% and 96%. That's it for hedge funds. So that has to change period. Yeah. Well, that's great. And I hope um, I somewhat of a, I don't know, a, um, a, a voice, if you will, for women who feel more comfortable because they can't be what they can't see. So if they see more women like me, who do actively analyze, you know, who, who, for, you know, good or bad, make, you know, that outreach, if you will, with calls and with a service and with managing money and all of that, they will be more, um, I hope, inspired to do the same and explore, especially the young women. I'm so excited when somebody that I, in the past, you know, have seen as a mentor. I mean, huge knowledge I have gained from um, incredible minds out there. It's just beautiful, that access, if you will. But when they, when I have a young woman who's in college, who is interested in finance and trading, follow me, I'm to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> so I want more, I want more um, women in finance and trading, period. Great. And so if there are any, uh, young women out there or any women or any guys out there who want to uh, find you online and learn more, uh, where can they find you, Samantha? Well, obviously my, my Twitter that I've just mentioned because we were talking about you know statistics is at Samantha Laduc, which is L-A-D-U-C, and my website, LaducTrading.com. I have a few other places where I'm present, stock twits and LinkedIn and Instagram and Facebook. But I'm more active on my main Twitter handle for sure. Yeah, that's great. Go out there and uh, what do you say? Oh, follow. I have bad uh, Twitter terminology. I just never say it out loud. Uh, Well, Samantha, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. It was great learning about um, your background and what you've been doing. Um, Just great stuff. Been a fantastic guest. So glad to have you. Well, thank you for the invite. I have appreciated the attention for sure, just to be able to talk about the um, the macro to micro aspect, which I know is a little bit different than 
some of the single threaded disciplines, but I, I find it does serve some really good purposes. And then of course you are open-minded helps that you're young, but <laughs> to, to kind of uh, help in this bringing to light the value of women in decision-making, especially in regards to this industry, which is growing right now with tons of retail traders and women need to feel safe. And I think this is a really, and be able to be heard. And, and also they've got some phenomenal input and very risk aware. I, I'm very impressed by the, uh, the commitment of uh, women that I have met virtually in this business in the past two years. It's definitely, definitely increased a lot. That's a great place, I think, to leave it off. Thanks so much, Samantha. And uh, we'll talk to everyone else right after this uh, sound effect. Everybody out there, thank you for making it to the end of this podcast, which is called the Limit Up Podcast, which is a weird way to phrase the words. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're running a eighth birthday extravaganza at Top Step Trader. Uh, we got a lot of cool packages on trading combines, resets. Things like that, stuff you can put in your quiver if you ever need it down the road. Um, yeah, Dan, what are you doing this weekend? Ah, uh, this weekend, uh, some more of the normal, hanging out on the boat, playing, running the dog, and uh, time with friends, family, bonfires. You know, standard standard weekend at the lake. Yeah, I'm gonna How go. About you? I'm going to Al Alcala's on North uh, on Chicago Avenue. Got my first two sets of cowboy boots there. Uh, yeah, so everyone listening, there's this huge uh, Western clothing outlet uh, in Chicago. It's been there like forever called Alcala's. And I'm going to my cousin's wedding in Wyoming in a few weeks. Uh, assuming not everything doesn't get locked down by then. Um, but I, uh, I, I'm lacking in formal Western wear. So I'm going to get a, a real real embroidered uh i'm thinking like a like a i'm gonna look like kenny powers get like a black shirt with some like roses embroidered i'm gonna look like an asshole but uh i think you're allowed to do that i think way. you are i've got well i'll be honest with you i have all that stuff already i've got the bolos i got the dress boots i got the the work boots i've got the custom made uh stetson hats um with my initials br branded on them i've got the tassely shirts so my grandpa was a rancher uh, and he has all this great, uh, you know, he's got, he's got the Stetsons and everything else. The problem is my, my grandpa was a very tiny man, uh, very, compact, <laughs> little, you know, Irish leprechaun and none of his stuff, uh, fits. So no luck. I do have a straw hat though. So I'll pro uh, I have a nice cowboy hat. I'll put it there. On. You go. Well, Alcala's is a perfect spot for it. Well, right on. So, uh, everyone's Thursday. Hope you're doing something fun or buying something nice this weekend as well. <laughs> uh, stay safe, namaste, and trade well. The Limit Up Podcast is produced by Dante32. Futures in Forex trading contain substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.